You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This One Nation Conservative government has been given a powerful new mandate to get Brexit done. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take. This is so unique an outcome. There's never been a party that's gone to the country for the fourth time of asking and increased its standing in Parliament. There is a clear desire and endorsement for the notion that Scotland should not be landed with a Boris Johnson government and ripped out of Europe against our will. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Caroline Hepke. Welcome to the programme. So the government is pressing for a full investigation of the Ukrainian Boeing jet crash in Iran. Although Iran insists that the plane was not shot down, the UK, Canada and Australia say they have evidence it was two surface-to-air missiles that were responsible for British nationals were victims in the disaster. But that story is likely to take some time to unfold. Meanwhile, how to solve the social care crisis We're going to take a deep dive into one of the other thorny issues for the Johnson government with two experts in the field. And then now, a draft deal looks to be in place to restore power sharing in Northern Ireland. It's been exactly three years since the devolution collapsed, ultimately over a botched renewable energy scheme. The agreement has won the backing of the DUP and if Sinn Féin approves it, the Assembly could be up and running later. So let's delve into that story. Here is the Irish Foreign Minister, Simon Coveney, who is urging politicians to support a power-sharing agreement. Forget the language of win and lose. This is a deal filled with compromises. They're fair compromises. But most importantly, they are compromises in the interests of all of the people in Northern Ireland. So that was the Irish Foreign Minister Simon Coveney speaking. For more, let's go live now to Dublin, where Bloomberg's Bureau Chief Dara Doyle is standing by. Dara, good morning. Uh, Just give us, first of all, the details of this deal. Have actually any concessions been made? So I thought there's a number of key uh, planks to this agreement. Um, Take the three most important things. Number one, there's um, much more weight given to the Irish language in Northern Ireland. That's been a contentious issue, as you can imagine, in the UK-run province. Number two, there's been a a plan to overhaul the veto. Previously, one party in the Assembly could more or less veto anything it didn't like, which basically paralyzed the Assembly to a large extent. And three, it looks like there will be um, a, a significant amount of extra 
cash given to Northern Ireland if, if the assembly resumes. Um, the details of that have yet to be finalised, but it looks like more money for Northern Ireland. But look, I think what's important here mm-hmm. is not so much the detail of the deal, but the context. Um, previously, the DUP, as you know, was a vital part of the UK system, propped up Theresa May's government and then Boris Johnson's government. Now, uh, Johnson doesn't need a DUP because he's got a stonking big majority. Therefore, the DUP needs to look closer to home for it to restore its influence. So I think what's, what's important here is not so much the content of the deal, but the context yeah. of the deal. And that's why we're much closer to agreement today. Okay, that is interesting. Yeah, and that sort of begs also my question around the money. You know, if the DUP is less important uh, to the Westminster government, uh, it's that sort of issue around uh, money that that is interesting to me. And also the timing of this, kind of why now, as well as obviously how close we actually are to getting power sharing back. Well, I mean, I think, as I say, there's no detail yet on the size of the financial package that will be given to Northern Ireland if the Assembly is, is, is restored, but there's no doubt there will be extra cash. And to be honest, you know, in the history of Northern Ireland, it's always part of the deal. Get the parties back together, they'll be given extra cash to get things moving again. I mean, if, you know, and that's legitimate to, you know, Northern Ireland is still recovering from the legacy of trouble, so there's no issue there, but it's always part of the formula to restore power sharing. How close are we? Well, the DUP is on board, we know that already. Um, the key second key player is Sinn Féin, the Nationalist Party. Around lunchtime, their leadership will gather, they will consider details of the deal. If they approve it, then we could see the Assembly and Executive back as soon as, uh, as later today. Uh, it, they may ask for a little bit more time, maybe over the weekend, but we're certainly edging closer to, to a deal. Okay, if we don't get the deal, though, where does that leave Northern Ireland, Irish uh, politics? And, of course, the question of whether you get London intervention. I mean, that's the kind of ultimate peril, I guess, for, for the region, which wouldn't perhaps want that to happen. So look, we do have what looks like a bit of a hard deadline on Monday. Um, uh, the UK, uh, the, the Northern Irish Secretary, Julian Smith, has consistently said that if the Assembly is not back in place by Monday, January 13th, he will call fresh elections for the Assembly. Now, look, you know, we know enough at Northern Ireland to know that all these deadlines tend to be a little bit flexible. If they're very close to a deal on Monday, will, it, will that deadline be extended? You would imagine so. But having said that, there's enough there to, you know, concentrate the minds of the DP and Sinn Féin that a deal is, is needed. There does seem to be a sense among Northern Irish population that this has gone on too long. It's one of the longest periods in Western Europe that you know, a country or a nation or a region has gone without, gone without government. So there's a real sense of, let's just get this done, I would be amazed if yeah. there was not a deal by Monday, uh, maybe if not by Monday, certainly by the end of next week, I would be astonished it didn't happen. But of course, Northern Ireland, you never know what can happen. No, absolutely. And I guess also, you know, the fire too is surely also from Brexit, given uh, that the Prime Minister um, and the divorce from the European Union is going through. You know, only yesterday we saw him, uh, you know, winning the vote in Parliament to get uh, the Brexit deal through the House of Commons. So that surely is also a significant motivation. Well, I mean, yes and no. Uh, like, the reality is the Brexit deal is done. The Northern Irish backstop is done. Not, nothing the Assembly is going to do in the next six months is going to make a huge amount of difference to, 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 to what that deal is going to look like. But down the line, 
this assembly is going to have a crucial role to play in the Brexit process. Uh, without wanting to you know, bore you to death and take you back to, to where we were about last December, essentially we have this deal which is, uh, keeps Northern Ireland essentially in the European Customs Union. That's fine, but in four years' time, or actually five years' time, the assembly will have a vote on whether or not to keep those rules in place. If they want, they can overturn those rules, they can return Northern Ireland fully to the UK fold, in which case we'll be back to the crisis of uh, avoiding a hard border in Northern Ireland. So, you know, you might have Northern Ireland off the radar for a couple of years, but um, we could have the crisis back, but not, I can promise you, for four or five years. Okay, very interesting. Thank you so much for joining us there uh, from Dublin. That's Bloomberg's Bureau Chief Dara Doyle uh, talking about potentially the return of power sharing at Stormont in uh, Northern Ireland after uh, a three-year hiatus. So thank you, Dara, for your words this morning. Now, I want to delve into another major issue, really, a more, perhaps more long-term one for this government under uh, Boris Johnson. So in December, it was one of the most difficult months ever for the NHS, with A&E wait times the worst on record. But whilst the NHS, which is, of course, quote, struggling to escape its spiral of decline, according to the president of the Royal College of Emergency Medicine, actually, there's another hidden but even more severe crisis. It's in social care. The Prime Minister Boris Johnson has promised to fix that crisis with a pledge to find a cross-party consensus on long term reform that was in the Queen's speech and also a billion pounds in funding in the Tory manifesto. Well, for more on this big issue, we're joined this morning by Anita Charlesworth, who is Director of Research and Economics at the think tank, the Health Foundation, and also Matt Kilcoyne, who is the Deputy Director of the Adam Smith Institute. A very warm welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for coming in uh, to speak to us on Bloomberg Westminster. Look, I want to start by just kind of outlining what the the scale of this crisis is, um, you know, it is known in some senses and has come to the fore, for example, in recent days from Nicola Sturgeon, talking about how social care services in Scotland are very much under pressure. Anisha, shall I start with you? Yes, so um, it might be worth, first of all, just explaining a little bit what social care is. Yes. Often um, people are very familiar with the NHS, um, less clear about social care. So what we're talking about here is adult social care. So it's the help people over 18 get. Mm. Um, and it's um, really split into two separate groups. So for older people, um, people over 65, what tends to happen is as people get old and frail, they struggle with things like washing, dressing, feeding themselves. Um, The social care system helps them with those activities of daily living, if you like, primarily in their home. But when they reach a certain stage, it also supports people who need to go into residential care, into a care home. It can also be younger people too. But also very importantly, about half the spending is actually on people between the ages of 18 and 65. And that's mainly actually for people with learning disabilities. So um, and what we've seen is that although we talk a lot about older people Mm. and their needs, we've seen a big rise over the decades in the number of people of working age who need help as a byproduct really of the success of the NHS and modern medicine as people's life expectancy for many conditions like for example uh, um, uh, if you take things like um, um, musculoskeletal or any of those issues people are living much longer but Mm -hmm. they need a lot of, uh, of help. Matt do you agree that this is a crisis? 
Yeah, there is a crisis in it. Um, we have both a crisis of provision, supply, but also a crisis of demand, and we're not mm -hmm. meeting either uh, very well in this country. It's an issue that Westminster hasn't dealt with very well. Uh, the political parties were very scared of grasping the nettle of what's needed, what's possible, and the Conservatives especially are very scared of this. Obviously, in 2017, it derailed their chances of a majority in the election. Yes, this was the dementia <clears throat> tax under Theresa May when uh, ideas around social care were sort of yes. yeah, were and when, seen as very negative. And when Boris Johnson became Prime Minister, Sajid Javid, the, the, the new Chancellor, came in and said that he was offering uh, you know, another £1.5 billion pounds, uh, for adult social care. John McDonnell, at the time, uh, and still is, Labour's shadow Chancellor, but not for very much longer, described this as grubby politics, um, a sticking plaster designed to get rid of the, the issue from the mm. upcoming election. He's absolutely right, it was. Um, and, it, and for fundamentally, it did. Um, it did not come up as an issue during the election, despite it being something that will touch roughly a quarter of us personally will be after social mm. care at some point in our lives but also many more of us through family members and relatives okay i'm going to come back to this in just a moment success is more than the final destination it's a path you take one step at a time it's discipline it's teamwork and it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition it's what stiefel's been doing for over 130 years Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. How can we avoid talking about Harry and Meghan? It's in every newspaper, inches and inches of it, about this decision uh, by the royal couple to step back from their duties. The BBC, of course, has the news line, Prince Harry and Meghan, the Duchess returning to Canada, uh, where her young baby is, of course, baby Archie, uh, and leaving her husband, essentially, to do the talking with the Queen. The Evening Standard, sources close to Harry and Meghan, saying that they regard their role as something similar to tech in innovators, disruptors. Loads of the newspapers, of course, uh, have their inside sources. But even the FT has a piece about the royal family and how Harry and Meghan could bankroll their break from, quote, the firm. Uh, and then just uh, also on the Bloomberg terminal this morning, uh, some interesting new figures in terms of the cost of Brexit. The UK's lacklustre growth relative to peers suggests actually that Brexit has already cost the economy £130 billion since the 2016 referendum. So new calculations uh, by Bloomberg Economics. And that number potentially could keep getting bigger, even the boost uh, expected from the uh, Prime Minister's decision uh, and the elect election victory that he had in December actually is not going to stop a further deterioration of some £70 billion. So I thought those numbers were quite useful uh, to put into the whole Brexit conversation, of course. Uh, now, let's uh, return to my guests uh, today. 
today uh, and join Anita Charlesworth, Director of Research and Economics at the think tank, um, the Health Foundation. Actually, interesting also to note that you were previously the Chief Economist at the Nuffield Trust. You've worked in government at the Treasury, the DCMS and so on. And Matt, Matt Kilcoyne, Deputy Director at the Adam Smith Institute. Of course, the Institute promotes free markets, a free society in the UK. I ripped that off your website. Uh, and Matt <laughs> has research interests in trade, Brexit and financial services regulation. Look, so let's get on to the thorny question because the two of you have seemed very uh, convivial in the studio, but I know that you have very different views when it comes to actually financially how to solve the social care crisis, when it comes to funding, when it comes to the workforce, when it comes to what is provided to individuals. Anita, what, what's the solution? So I think we need to see that there are three problems that we need to solve with social care. <clears throat> One of those clearly is that the system of funding is not seen as fair by people. Mm. So some polling that was done by us back in uh, November found that 62% of people think that having to use your home to fund care is not right. Mm. <clears throat> so, um, and at the moment with the means-tested system, you know, that's what people have to, to do. So there is a real question about the fairness of funding, which has been going round for about 20, 30 years. But hang on, the Prime Minister saying that the plans that the Tory party have means that, quote, nobody needing care should be forced to sell their home to pay for it. Well, so at the moment he said that, but there isn't a proposal for how to make that a reality. And that's what we're waiting for with the delayed green paper, white paper, whatever, uh, perhaps in the budget in uh, March. But it's not the only problem. Mm -hmm. So there are two other problems. One is that a lot of people who need care are not getting access to care. Mm -hmm. And many of those people, if you take people with learning difficulties who might be 20 years old, they don't have a home and a whole load of lifetime assets to use for patients to pay for their care so where's that going to come from and then the other issue is that the amount that the government pays for care is too low for providers to give a high quality of, of care a lot of that we think is going to have to fall on the state whatever you do about it Matt I can see you raring to go so, why <laughs> so a, lot of, a lot of that therefore means when we say the state we mean taxpayers yeah um, now the first two you know, people don't think it's fair that they have to pay via an asset that they've built up over their lives. And young people don't have an asset that they're going to inherit over a period of time that they're mm. going to be able to fall back on, play into each other pretty well. I, mean, I know that actually if the government decides to go ahead with saying that old people will not have to sell their homes in order to fund their own care or contribute to their care, there will be a backlash from young people who have been priced out of the housing market by that generation and who have blocked developments and new building for decades now to the point where, yes, they've seen an appreciation in an asset, but young people have been locked out. Um, what, we, what we've suggested, though, instead is a, is a funding model that looks more like an insurance market where the state provides an end to, to tail off risks and therefore enables a market to exist. And actually, what it does is, it, like national insurance or like um, for savings, like pensions, for example, um, it requires you above a certain age to have a certain percentage being paid into a pot that you then have as a personal control over that then pays for any social care that you may need later in life. But, but a certain amount of which can then be taxed by the government and then so used to socialise care costs okay. later down the line. Matt, what is the difference um, between your proposal and basically repeating effectively the NHS-style model for uh, adult social care? I mean, you're, you're trying to also involve the private sector. Is that the idea? 
Yeah, so what you've got in the NHS is you don't really have patient choice. Mm. Um, if you you are within your, your you have a, a GP, that GP assigns you to services at a local hospital within a care commissioning group. Um, what what we would say is more like how you pay for things like opticians mm. um, or a dentist, where you actually have a choice over who is your provider, but you have payment into a system, and then the government covers costs better actually I would say than opticians and dentists for those who can't otherwise afford care. Uh, Anita though I mean my question around that is surely with such a long tail risk the insurance industry would not want to fund or or would not want to be involved and there isn't really a model overseas for that sort of system. So I think this is the really critical issue and Sir Andrew Dilnot who used to be the head of the Institute for Fiscal Studies was commissioned by um, the coalition government back in 2011 to have a look at this question and he said this is fundamentally an insurance problem Mm. so one in ten people face care costs over a hundred thousand pounds the problem is we don't know which of us is uh, that that one in ten and actually this is an, an uninsurable risk by a voluntary private market because we don't know given the nature of medical advance uh, uh, longevity how what the the exposure will be mm. for people in the future so he said very clearly we need to deal with this as an insurance problem but we need to have compulsory insurance and he proposed a cap on care costs a system whereby individuals would be responsible for the first element of their cost, but there would be protection against that catastrophic cost. And I think the critical issue there is that individuals would then contribute. You could either do that through general taxation, through a dedicated kind of ring-fenced amount, which is kind of what the Germans uh, do. But the most important thing is it's not your personal saving. It is a pooled risk. And that's the fundamental thing. If it's a voluntary system where individuals... Mm. have a personal savings account, that won't work. It's got to be a pooled risk. The interesting about, thing about the Dilnot proposal is, in fact, it's the law of the land. It was enacted by the coalition in 2014 as part of the Care Act, but because of the cost and the pressures on the system... It's never come into force. It's never come into force. So if Boris Johnson and his government did want to do something about the fairness of social care, the simplest thing to do, in fact, the cheapest thing to do, is to enact... It is to actually implement what is on the statute well, book at the moment. And also, Matt, surely if we haven't been able to solve the pensions saving problem. So, uh, you know, it also begs the question, how would people, why would people be incentivised well, to we, pay for care? We should be we should be wary of saying that we've not necessarily solved the pensions. So we know that the pensions black holes are getting better. The, the mm. auto-enrolment has sort of moved the, the country in the right direction. But it's that not was, solved again, completely. a government nationwide initiative Agreed. that meant that everybody had to Yes, and I think more compulsory insurance for social care will do exactly the same thing yeah. but where i where i see a difference for mm. us is the um i look at sort of singapore and, and even germany actually to, as you mentioned um where you yes actually that pot is still sort of yours but there are the government is, takes certain percentages away and that is then socialized um if you are paying large amounts in and it's capped as to how much you can pay in um and receive a tax benefit for doing so um then yes, you actually do get a certain amount that you can then spend on extra things. Now, for some people, it doesn't make sense to do that. You put in the amount that you have, and then you also have a savings account. And then if you want to, say, live in the lap of luxury in your 90, in your 80s and 90s, you can do that. Um, and that's well within their rights. Um, 
but we, we have but you're absolutely right okay. you can't have it so that somebody has no provision at all that's right. kind of the point of the government okay then look i want to get back onto the point of the day which is do either of you have any optimism or hope that this administration is going to do better than any of the last in the past decade in dealing with what could be a massive crisis you know, is there a crisis coming i'll say yes um, yeah, and the right. reason for this is because a bunch of private conversations and public conversations that were had just prior to the election mm. during and also immediately after Social care came top as the one issue that they were looking for new ideas, a new focus on. Um, but and this that, cross-party pledge, I mean, that's not taking things any further forward. The Green Paper is, is years well, I don't and think has an cr- a billion pounds. Everybody says it's a drop in the bucket. You're not going to have cross-party um, pledges whilst there's a Labour leadership election happening mm. um, because they can't be seen to be hand in hand with the Tories. They, they're going through a period of reflection that is mostly a civil war. Um, but fundamentally, the Conservative Party does have a majority. Um, Matthew Hancock has been told to stop focusing on sugar taxes, nanny status, um, policies on a bunch of other things, and to focus on social care, um, as well as MCHLG, so mm-hmm. uh, Generic and the, the and the Department for Communities, which also has a role, a role in social in care. Um, and I think that they are really taking it quite seriously. So there's okay. a chance that there's a, that they found a solution. Okay, Anita, just give me your view in, in 30 seconds. I, th- I think there is a real window of opportunity at the mm-hmm. moment. We actually have on our statute book legislation which is a perfectly workable solution to the issue of the fairness of funding between the individual and the state. The government doesn't need to build a further cross-party consensus. It just needs to decide in the budget in March to actually get on and implement the cap. Mm. Let's see whether that happens. March the 11th, Sajid Javid and uh, the budget. No doubt we will uh, bring you all the details in some week's time. Look, I want to thank you both for coming in and having this discussion. Uh, I think it's well worth uh, looking at. Anita Charlesworth, Director of Research and Economics at the Think Tank, the Health Foundation, and Matt Kilcoyne, the Deputy Director at the Adam Smith Institute. Do join me next week, same time, or download the podcast. This is Bloomberg Westminster. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.